Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy, where I head the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and the Children's Policy Centre. And today I am so delighted that my other half of the podcast, Anna Greta Hunter, is back with us. It's great to be here, Sharon. I missed you too. It's been ages. It's great to see you. It's been two whole weeks since we've been mm. in the pod studio together, so it's really nice mm. for us both to be back. And particularly as this is our special issue uh, or special episode for International Women's Day. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school. This is a particularly exciting time because Last week, we started back face-to-face teaching in the classroom, and it really is great to be back in the classroom with our amazing students. So listeners, if you are interested in coming and studying with us, check out our degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So, Anna Greta, we were saying it's a while since we've been in the studio together. Mm. Um, and you, of course, were away last week. I told our listeners you were away being a cardiologist, but, um, <laughs> which I think was, was, was true, but you were doing lots of other really interesting things. What yeah. have you been up to? No, look, I, I don't think that was cardiology, but uh, I, I was really lucky to go to Melbourne last week, actually, and to, uh, to enjoy a face-to-face conversation at the Fitzroy Town Hall hosted by the Climate and Health Alliance. Uh, following on some, for some work last that we did that we did last year um, on future scenarios, thinking about climate change and the health impacts, and the sort of opportunities we have in the policy space now to really change health and wellbeing in Australia over the next decade. So, if you if you're at all interested in work on future scenarios, or if you're interested in climate change and health, I, I recommend checking out that uh, that policy document that's been produced by the Climate and Health Alliance. Um, and it was a fantastic conversation, an amazing panel, um, and me uh, at the Fitzroy Town Hall. With with a nice group of people gathered to, to join us uh, both online and in uh, face-to-face. 
And what was really surprising, or not at all surprising actually about that, was the the number of issues that had come up through our wellbeing series last year. So in the topics of conversation, we're thinking about health, we're thinking about the health impacts of climate change, we're thinking about how Australia can contend with uh, the challenges that are coming. And it's actually the stuff that came up in our wellbeing policy uh, forum podcast from last year that were really a big topic of conversation. The other thing I thought I'd just mention, because I know it's got me thinking quite a lot, um, was that I, I attended the Getting Elected uh, convention of the weekend that was hosted by Cathy McGowan and a group of people who are really interested in how democracy is working in Australia. Um, I'm not planning to run for parliament, but I'm very interested in the way in which we, we uh, engage in the political process. And it's got me thinking again about leadership, thinking again about representation, thinking again about how to engage with communities. Um, and so I think it's got the makings of another series for us uh, in terms of the work that we're doing on this podcast. What do you reckon, Sharon? I think that sounds like a fantastic idea. Um, I, I, I've Going back to the, the work that you've been doing around climate and futures that you were in Melbourne for, you know, it's great, Anna Greta, because when I hear you talking about that now, I get a sense of optimism in your voice. Mm. And so often when we talk about issues of climate change, it's really hard to be optimistic. You know, one feels absolutely despairing at times. Mm. But I think those moments where people come together and actually think about how we can make change and make change that is sustainable and just is so important for us. So maybe we can put that policy document on our website so people can link to that and, and have a look if they'd like yeah, to. No, that'd be great. Um, but on leadership, yes, I think we are seeing so many issues at the moment that call for strong, just, thoughtful, compassionate leadership. And we are seeing examples of that around the world and we are seeing dire failures in many places. So, um, yeah, let's let's develop that kind of series mm. along the lines of the wellbeing series and those two would come together beautifully, I yeah, think. Absolutely. I wonder if it will come up in today's podcast. Sharon, what are we going to be talking about today? We may touch on leadership. <laughs> <laughs> um, today we're, we're talking about a really confronting issue, an issue that's often difficult to talk about, um, but an issue that we must talk about. So sexual harassment and gender-based violence are not new to any workplace. There was a time when such behaviour was so commonplace as to be the norm. But since the 1970s, we've seen policy discourse move progressively towards achieving inclusive workplaces and workplaces that are free from sexual harassment and from violence. And of course, in the 1970s, Australia was a world leader in putting in place mechanisms for gender equality and gender equity. In the four and a half decades since, it often feels like we've made very little progress. Allegations of workplace discrimination, harassment and violence remain far too common and far too many people are affected, sometimes with absolutely devastating consequences. And of course, these problems are not unique to any one country. Each year on International Women's Day, along with the celebrations of women's lives, contributions and leadership, is the recognition of ongoing discrimination, harassment and violence in the workplace and elsewhere. And I think for many of us, we know that our mothers and our grandmothers faced those kinds of really awful issues in the workplace as well as other parts of society. We cannot have a society where our daughters and our granddaughters continue to face 
discrimination, sexual harassment and violence in the workplace. And over recent weeks, Australia has been rocked and should be rocked by the allegations that a young woman was raped within her workplace at Parliament House and that there was no support or care for her following that ideal. And the allegations keep coming leading many to ask where we are as a nation if the key institution of our democracy is a dangerous workplace for women. So on today's pod, we don't want to focus on specific incidents, but we do want to explore how we might be able to move forward from what feels like a very bad place. And we want to ask two experts in the area how we can make safe and inclusive workplaces for women and indeed for everyone. So we are absolutely delighted to have two wonderful guests with us for this conversation. Uh, Fiona Jenkins is the convener of the ANU Gender Institute, a position that she's now holding for a second time. And Fiona has been one of the driving forces for many years, um, along with Margaret Jolly and Kim Rubenstein of the, the ANU Gender Institute. Fiona's research covers uh, a range of is- issues. Her uh, work in philosophy. So Fiona is an associate professor in philosophy. Her work in philosophy focuses on gender, contemporary French philosophy, um, and on Nietzsche and on radical democratic theory. In recent times, she's also had a particular focus on equity issues facing women in academia particularly, and on issues around meritocracy and practice and theory. And of course, we'll be talking about lots of those issues today. Fiona is also co-editor, along with Marianne Saw and Karen Downing, of a fabulous book called How Gender Can Transform the Social Sciences, which was published by Palgrave in 2020, and addresses some of the issues that we're going to be talking about today. Um, and I'm feel, feeling really honoured to have had a chapter in that book on our work on gender-sensitive measurement of multidimensional poverty. Uh, so Fiona, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you with us, Fiona. And the other guest we have with us today, of course, is Lisa Heap. Lisa is a labour lawyer with over 20 years of practice experience. She's a member of the Centre for People, Organisation and Work at RMIT University, where she's researching new regulatory approaches designed to prevent gendered violence in the workplace. She's the former Executive Director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights, a non-governmental organisation that promotes the application of international labour standards within Australia. In 2018 and 2019, Lisa was a member of the ILO Standard Setting Committee that developed the new ILO Convention on the Elimination of Violence and Harassment in the World of Work. A member of the Victorian Government's Ministerial Council on Women's Equality, the Victorian Ministerial Task Force on the Prevention of Violence Against Women, and in 2018, Lisa was commissioned to produce the the state's first Women in in Construction Strategy. Lisa, it's great to have you joining us today as well. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and have this conversation with you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Lisa, can we start with some first principles? What does it mean to have a safe and inclusive workplace and what does safety look like in that context? Yes, as safety in that context I think looks like the, the fact that everyone feels and is safe in the workplace. So there's two components to that, I think, the feeling safe and the being safe in the workplace. And it and it also um, it also involves the idea that there is a con- there are conscious efforts to create that environment. In the area of gender based violence and harassment in the workplace, um, the 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 key here from my point of view would be to ensure that we can see um, uh, organisations understanding 
um, that gender-based violence is something that happens in all workplaces and it ha- as it happens in society, it's a feature, and that they have a responsibility for um, recognising it and um, planning to prevent it in their workplace. So I would want to see in any workplace a upfront prevention plan that acknowledges that it's likely to be there because it's likely to be everywhere um, and also um, a, a conscious measurement um, and understanding of the risk factors that might be in play in, this, in, in that workplace so that the workplace understands its own risks and it actually takes measures, conscious and, and positive measures to address those risks to prevent gender-based violence. Uh, yeah. um, so do you think, um, is safety the same for everyone? Do we do we design this as a fit for purpose in a workplace environment or are there broad principles, do you think, that are applicable on a universal basis? I think there's, I think there are some broad principles along with the idea that we have to actually um, set aside with that, the, the idea that there might be specific risks as well, depending on the type of the workplace and depending on the cohort of workers that are in, in the workplace and depending even on the work function. We know, for example, that people who have face-to-face interaction with people from outside of the workplace as part of their job are likely to meet more, um, particularly gender-based violence in the workplace, so we plan for that. So I think the broad principles about safety, um, which we kind of, everyone should feel um, that they have a clarity around what it is, um, the right to have it in the workplace, um, the right to be able to address issues um, that they feel make the workplace unsafe, they are broad parameters broad principles that we would work on and then we need um, organisations to understand their specific risk factors in their workplaces depending on the nature of the work, um, the type of work and workers that they have and the culture and environment within which they have in that workplace. Fiona, I I wanted to bring you in now and talk a little bit about meritocracy and often the idea of merit is closely associated with inclusivity in the workplace and the idea that if we treat people um, equally and we give equal opportunities to progress on merit, then we're going to have good outcomes. But can you tell us a little bit about your research around meritocracy and does meritocracy change workplace cultures in ways that are more inclusive of women? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think clearly we do think about meritocracy as a kind of system of of fairness and one that is designed to overcome, you know, um, nepotism and ways in which people might, you know, just make selections based on pre-existing relationships or forms of influence. Um, But I I tend to think of meritocracy as as a system that, you know, whilst it's distributing a kind of equal treatment, it's also distributing a kind of inequality. Um, It's very much about justifying hierarchies. It's about... um, Uh, I I even think of it as distributing a kind of sense of entitlement. So if you have the merit for the job, if you're the the person who's the best, deemed to be the best for the job, then you are entitled to the job. And I find it very interesting actually to go back to the sort of Catholic understanding of merit, which was, you know, the good deeds that merited you reward. (laughs) Um, And, uh, of course, that's always tempered in Catholicism by the idea that God's grace is important. You know, he might or might not reward you. But nonetheless, it's tied to that sense that you're somehow entitled to reward. And and when we have um, a distribution of a sense of entitlement linked to hierarchy, um, you've got all sorts of other things coming into play. So you've got uh, very often a very strong uh, justification of um, uh, vertical segregation in workplaces. You know, the sense that you've got groups who are 
so much better than others, that they're entitled to so much more pay than others. And so there's all sorts of ways in which meritocracy, whilst being about equal treatment ostensibly, can be feeding quite a strong system of of hierarchy and reproducing uh, inequalities in multiple ways. So um, it can be very um, uh, a very conservative system because it's drawing down frameworks for evaluating um, who is best, what the best kind of uh, performance is, what the best uh, indicators of performance are. And that can, again, be a way in which we have this very heavy weight of the past bearing down on the judgments that are made in the present. I think about the um, AI problems that that uh, showed up, I think it was in Google, um, when they were using AI to kind of screen CVs for jobs. And they discovered that um, the AI was throwing up all the time that the men were best for the job. And why was that? It was because they were drawing down on all the previous instances in a male-dominated institution, which then was reproducing itself in the present. Um, And I think that, that throws up as well the sense that, you know, when we try to make meritocratic judgments... Often what we imagine we're doing is, is being very objective, being very, um, uh, you know, reasonable because we're so objective about our criteria. You know, we compare the number of citations someone has over here with the, you know, and that's fair. Um, and we miss that whole background to what those citation patterns might look like, which is often very gendered. Um, and we also miss the kind of responsibility of judgment that we have in these spaces. So when we imagine we're being very objective, we can often miss all the ways in which we are actually responsible for making a decision, making a, a judgment about what really suits this organisation, what really suits our needs at the moment. And I, I have a, I have a paper called Discriminating Well. <laughs> <laughs> which is about the idea that, yes, you know, ne- there's a negative sense of discrimination where you're discriminating against people, but discrimination can also mean judgment and it can mean, you know, judging in a way that's informed, thoughtful, responsible, that recognises that there is no objective substitute for our making decision in this space. And I, I think one could do a lot to reform meritocracy by more openly recognising that there is that space of decision, that we really need to think about um, whose authority, whose right to decide is feeding into that space of decision and, and, you know, take account of that rather than applying rules as though they somehow dictated what we do. And how is gender in particular encoded into those processes of meritocracy that are kind of handed down and those assumptions about what merit is? And how does that then become encoded in workplaces? Well, I mean, you know, they gave the one example from AI, like if you just kind of go, okay, the, the most, I, I mean, I think the interesting thing about meritocracy as well is it's it's inevitably the people who've been judged to be best by the system, who are the ones who are empowered to make these decisions about, you know, who gets promoted, who comes into the organisation. Um, and so there you've got a very natural tendency to have their sense of what's best about them being reproduced. If you've already got a very male-dominated cohort, it can be quite hard to break with assumptions about what's best in that context. Um, uh, but additionally, I mean, if you if you look at so I've looked a lot at um, academic um, 
uh, disciplines and um, take my own discipline, philosophy, if you look at, um, which is a very male-dominated discipline, not, not everybody knows <laughs> how, how male-dominated philosophy is, um, but it's really like, you know, some of the worst of the sciences. And um, one of the things that sort of shows up is that is that men tend to um, gather in certain areas of the discipline, and of course those are the areas of the discipline that are viewed as most prestigious and important and you'll have um, some you know journals that are regarded as the top journals in the field and what do you know they mostly publish articles by men mm. um, so you know it, it's it's it then creates a space in which when you're trying to get more women into the field which you know the discipline of philosophy certainly is you will tend to think that you want the women who work in these male-dominated areas and at the same time there's a huge sort of you know there have been areas where women have really progressed and done well in philosophy, often in areas labelled feminist philosophy, um, but that tends to be an area that's seen as not as prestigious and important. So you've got this classic kind of gendered divide that's going on in terms of the sense of the value of different areas, and it, it tends to reproduce. If not, you know, even when you're bringing women in, there will tend to be women who work in the areas that the men deem to be the most prestigious areas. So I think that's a bit distorting. Mm. Oh, I can't tell you how that resonates with me as a cardiologist. Okay? There's such extraordinary parallels, okay. I think, across so many different areas where we find that gender divide is so broad. Um, Lisa, I wanted to bring you back in at this point. Uh, why do you think we've failed so badly to create workplaces that are inclusive and safe uh, for women in particular, but really more broadly for everybody? Because I don't think we've actually, those workplaces have actually tackled that very question that Fiona's been talking about, that the, the regimes that exist, um, and what's de deemed to be the normative standards that exist within those regimes and practices. So, um, in my work, I'm looking at that question of whether or how, how organizations reinforce the gender regimes that exist in society in the workplace so that we start with, you know, what, exactly what Fiona was saying, what's, what's valued, um, what's measured, who's in power and control of, of the workplaces and the decision making, what's seen as being a good worker versus what's, you know, um, and that's, you know, requires everyone to basically leave yourself at home and come to work free from any incumbences, um, able to give everything to the workplace, have no, um, res you know, has no reservations about um, that being the sole focus of your life and those being the primary goals and objectives that you have in your life. So it's it's those sorts of, that, that sort of idea about what work is and the, and what a worker is and who's in power and control in organisations that really sort of reinforces um, the gender um, regimes that we see both in society and, and at work. And so because people actually don't actually really tackle that and see it for what it is, um, there's a lot of things that are going on um, around gender equality, around diversity, around inclusiveness, um, that really just sort of skate across the surface of really fundamentally addressing those um, power relationships in the workplace. And I'd say the same things for race as well in, in Australian workplaces in particular. Um, um, inclusivity in, in relation to um, uh, sexual orientation and other things, uh, um, and gender identity and things as well. So on the surface level, people kind of get this idea that there's this kind of... Um, Oh, we have to be um, better at uh, gender inclusiveness or um, racially inclusive or a more diverse workplace. 
Um, some organisations even espouse the idea of the business case for that. They talk, you know, they they understand at one level that it's apparently good um, that that's a that that greater diversity in workplaces. The research tells um, organisations that the greater diversity has better outcomes for organisations, but they don't really. Um, uh, the organisations and the people within the organisations don't really grapple with the fundamentals of what it might mean to really change that, um, address those uh, issues around the gender regime or um, and the power relationships in the workplace. So I think that's the, the problem and I think the, the sort of regulatory framework that we've had around this, um, including the Sex, Sex Discrimination Act, kind of reinforces this idea of a kind of what we call a formal sense of equality, which is that you put in place all these structures and processes and you say you've got, you know, even affirmative action um, strategies and the, and the like um, and you've got policies on things and you've got um, ways, that, you know, at the surface level you're sort of dealing with um, what's going on. But we're not really talking about what I would call substantive equality. We're not really talking getting down and really looking at changing the way we organise work, um, who's doing what work, um, who's in power and control and decision-making at a really fundamental level in work. Even what we decide and describe as a good worker, we're not, not tackling those, those things. And I think that's why this is continuing. Lisa, I'm really interested to hear the point that you made about the business case for equality. Um, and we see this in lots of places around gender equality. Um, you know, in some of my work, I see um, the case being made for women's empowerment because it's smart economics and it leads to better productivity and, and so on. So you have this kind of instrumentalist argument. And I'm just interested in teasing that out a little bit. Um, some would argue that the business case or the instrumentalist argument is kind of what we need because that's at the pointy end and it will change people's uh, priorities because there's a, yes. a self-interest reason for doing it. But you kind of went on to talk about how that might miss the mark and we need the kind of more substantive or intrinsic change. How do we balance those things? And by focusing on the instrumentalist arguments, might we kind of miss the point and end up having the wrong kinds of conversations? Should we be sort of starting with, with justice and fairness as our, as our first principles? I think that's probably, I think you raise a really good point and I think that's probably why people are kind of struggling with what we've seen in the last week or so in, at, at Parliament in terms of um, it not, I think everyone is uncomfortable where our, where our Prime Minister has currently landed on his, the approach to handling these gen, uh, series of allegations that are, that are happening over the last few weeks in Parliament. And I'm not sure everyone understands why they're uncomfortable, but fundamentally I think um, people are uncomfortable because in the end there's a sense that no matter what's legally right or what legally can be done or whether there can be criminal investigations or there can't be criminal investigations, and there's something just wrong with um, the fact that this is sort of sitting there without anyone in leadership going, okay, this is wrong, it's fundamentally wrong and we need to do something about it and we need to have a look at it. Um, um, and so 
I think the point that you made is exactly right, that, that the sense of fairness gets lost, the sense of, you know, the gut feeling, the understanding inside of people of what's right and wrong gets lost when we overlay it with um, can you make a complaint, can't you make a complaint, should it be confidential, shouldn't it be confidential, who should it be confidential to, should it be reported to the police, if it's reported to the police, um, should we do nothing, shouldn't we do nothing. And, and we suddenly move into that very kind of, um, you know, kind of, you called it instrumentalist, I think, but a very procedural, form, formalistic way of responding to something which fundamentally calls out, certainly to the women of Australia, I think, at the heart of them calls out to them as being, oh, my God, this this happens there in that place. This can, is wrong and it needs someone to, to, to grab hold of it and say we need to change this. So I do think that that um, those arguments, so to some extent, we've built, and I've been part of it. I've been, I mean, doing this work for over forty years, really. Basically, we've been part of building systems and, and talking about procedures and talking about um, policies and talking about initiatives and those sorts of things around diversity, inclusiveness, and gender equality. But at the heart, I don't think we've convinced people about um, in their to use their guts. Um, and to un- and to work on themselves to understand what's right and wrong. I mean, we have to realise that in fact the kind of gender regime that exists in our workplaces does benefit men, and therefore men don't actually have a lot of interest in unpacking that. You're actually asking men to give up privilege, to give up entitlement. Um, and to work towards something different. And I think we fundamentally um, forget that. I think when people making the business case to business, they they presume that when once business has heard the business case, they will accept it and go, oh, that's logical, let's imp- implement that. But in the end, what we would be asking to do is for the majority of those business leaders who are men, we'd be asking them to change everything they have done to be successful. And that's what I think is missing, that kind of understanding of the fundamental nature of the change that has to take place to see uh, gender-based violence stop at work. I think that's a great spot for us to take a quick break and we'll be back with you in just a few moments. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So listeners, welcome back to this conversation um, at the time of International Women's Day in 2021 about how we make 
workplaces safe and inclusive for women particularly, but really for everyone. And we're here with Fiona Jenkins and with Lisa Heap having an incredible conversation about the kinds of things we need to think about and address. And Fiona, I wanted to to come back to you. Before the break, Lisa was talking about, you know, we know when we see something that's unfair, but in making significant changes, we're also asking men who have been successful all their lives to actually give up the way they have achieved that success and to give up what might be very long-held attitudes or very deeply ingrained behaviours. A lot of your work has focused particularly on the, these, some of these issues within academia. And many universities over recent years have taken steps to try to make those institutions more gender inclusive and safer and better places for women to work. What has your research found about these issues in academia particularly? And what are your reflections on these issues of how we encourage, request, prompt people who have held power to start to think very differently about the nature of that power and how they engage with others? Yeah, that's a very, very big question. Um, uh, I wish I had some some quick answer. <laughs> I fear I don't. Um, but look, I think, I mean, I think what Lisa was saying um, earlier about uh, how we get back to these questions of um, fairness and justice, I think that's incredibly important. And, and like Lisa, I'm very sceptical about simply invoking some kind of business case for gender equality as though that was really going to, you know, make everybody see the light and, and, and fix things up. Um, you know, I, I would, I come back a little bit to a couple of things. I mean, one is the sense of how do we, how do we actually make workplaces, play, um, sites in which you can actually see the problems in which you, you know, these become visible? Because I, I think it's, you know, I think what Lisa was actually saying was that, you know, often we can't see the way to the fairness and justice. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's because the actual reliance on sheer procedure or, you know, the policy that says this can't, you know, this isn't allowed <laughs> actually paradoxically obscures vision of what's happening. Sure, having sometimes having a policy can be useful. You can refer to it and say, you know, this is not acceptable. But at the same time, I often run into the experience that when you raise something, people say, oh, we have a policy against that. So it can't be happening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that's a whole, you know, a whole very difficult space where, you know, it's also about how do we cultivate the kinds of um, relationships where we see one another as human beings and as and as vulnerable and as needing support. Um, there can be very dehumanising aspects of um, our workplaces where, um, you know, I, I think I think particularly of sort of casually employed people in universities uh, where, you know, they're not they're often not appointed actually on merit. And that's quite interesting coming back to what we were saying. You know, it's they're, they they can do the job. They're good enough to do the job, but it's not this kind of space where they're entitled to very much. And that is very interesting against a backdrop of an organisation where most people will be in more entitled kinds of roles. Um, and I think, you know, you create that gap between one set of conditions of employment and another, and you've you've got trouble brewing, right? Because you've not only got a very unequal relationship, you've not only got a sense that, you know, the casuals are in very precarious employment, they're very reliant on the people in more secure employment to 
you know, warrant that they are able to continue in, in work. Um, but you've also got this fundamental divide in status. And I think that's, you know, that's something that organisations need to look at really, really closely as a site where things can go badly wrong. I mean, I think the other thing about uh, leadership in this space is, again, we often sort of, you know, individualise the leader. And that's, you know, that's that's something, that, again, flows very much through our ways of selecting people. You know, oh, this person is, is the, almost as though they were the only person who could do the job. Um, but, of course, we exist in much wider cultures. And even, even a leader requires forms of mandate. So thinking about how the mandate for leadership is constructed, how it involves many people, not just one individual, and how we create that space of um, responsibility uh, in leadership that's very much referring to, again, the kind of culture, the kind of the humanity of the culture that, that leaders produce, the, the, the way in which if you like, power flows through an organisation rather than just being concentrated in leadership. I'm a little bit sceptical sometimes of, of too much talk about leadership because I think it misses this much wider context. Um, and, you, you know, how you secure that as a space in which um, people are able to be responsive to one another once again, I think that's that's really, really important. So these, these go way beyond what you can do through policy kind of frameworks, I think, but they are about thinking really critically about the kind of structure of organisations and, and how within them um, forms of violence really can become permissible, invisible, you know, not recognised as the terrible things that they are until something blows up. I mean, you can see sort of Parliament House as a place where people have been going along blithely thinking, oh, it doesn't matter if I have a drink with my staffers after work and it doesn't matter if this and that, you know, that's all good fun, that's all part of the culture. And then, you know, you see how that actually was was fermenting something that was, was terribly pernicious. Um, so, you know, these are quite complex questions of cultural organisation, I think. Lisa, I'm interested in hearing from you um, about a what I see as a potential conundrum, and I, I'm not sure if it is. Um, you made the point, which I think is so fundamentally important, that we shouldn't have to leave ourselves at home when we enter the workplace. You know, we, we should be able to be who we are, but it should also be recognised that we have a whole life that we lead hopefully we have a whole life, that we lead in addition to work. And I'm struck by the point that you made, Fiona, which I often reflect on, you know, that ministers thought it was okay to go and have a drink with their staffers after work. And, of course, that's the way power plays out in the workplace. And historically we've often seen that as being a, a very blokey thing, <laughs> a very masculine thing where men will go and drink after work and women are not included in that. And so at one level, bringing women into those kinds of social processes after work might be seen as a positive thing, but we also see how that plays out when there are power differentials. So I'm just trying to bring these two things together and think about how we strike the balance of people perhaps having relationships with one another um, I'm thinking platonic relationships, uh, but caring relationships with one another outside work or social relationships 
bringing themselves into the workplace and doing that in a way that is respectful, that doesn't reinforce power hierarchies or create extra spaces for things to go very badly wrong. Um, Lisa, I know that's a very big and broad <laughs> question, but I wonder if you have reflections on how we might be able to start to move towards that balance. I feel like I need to contemplate that question for at least a week um, <laughs> to answer it. But, um, I think what I what I want probably I'm not sure if I'm answering it, but I, I'll, I'll say this: I don't think those. Um, out, out, I think in though in environments where you already have what I would call a, for want of a better term, I'm sure there's a better, te- more technical term, a macho culture um, at play. Um, we can't. We know that the, the the there there actually isn't just this distinction between work and social in many instances. Um, the business carries on. That it's it's part of um, how business is done in many of those environments. Uh, informal decision making, um, the network that's created. Um, I'm aware of a, a couple of examples. I'm aware of how some parts of the finance financial sector use um, attendance at kind of social functions as a requirement of work to network to 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 take people out uh, potential clients out to take them out to what I would call quite risky environments for everyone um, in, in, in many instances and how that's built into the job. Um, we know that, um, you know, women have often been excluded from that kind of informal decision that where you have that stereotypical um, golf is part of the work or sporting activity is seen as social, but in fact it's, it's, it's a network and people are talking about the work when they're in those environments and they're... Um, uh, you know, making decisions, even if they're informal decisions and they're making connections and the like in those. So I'm not so sure that those things are, I'm not so sure in the environments where we've got those kind of very masculine or macho cultures at play, um, those pra- I don't, I'm not sure those practices of, of being social are about friendship or about relationships um, is the first thing I'll probably say in unpacking. I think they're about work and I think that's a very blurred line. Um, I just, I just, I'm not, it's very hard to answer what you're saying because it is absolutely a conundrum. You don't want workplaces where people think I can't be social with one another um, if I, um, if I, particularly if someone's another sex, of the opposite sex or something like that because there might be a problem, it might be seen as a problem. That's not what we're asking for. But what we are asking for is to everyone really understand what a kind of respectful relationship looks like in the workplace what 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 you know what a and and that really does involve some unpacking um um I was just thinking uh, about our conversation and 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 concerned in my own mind about presenting to work the places and workplace leaders that this is a such a big and complex problem to fix that you can't fix it and I was working out what I would say to that and I think on one hand my view about the, the requirement that organisations understand their own risk factors and have a risk management plan is one tangible way of kind of trying to get them to understand that they can take steps and to break down some of that complexity. So look at the risk factors, break it down in your own organisation. But on the other hand, what I do want to say, it is complex because you actually have to do some very fundamental work with people 
around what is respect and what does what do respectful relationships in and respectful actions and practices look like in workplaces and so I think you have to be doing you, you can be doing the sort of risk management thing on one hand but you've also got to manage that with kind of really unpacking with people the sense of what it means to be people in a workplace be respectful of one another have um, social relationships but don't cross over boundaries and don't use those social relationships in any way that um, you know that that sort of utilizes the power that's in the workplace in one group or another I'm not sure I've answered the question but I think there's something in the fact that there's things that people that organizations can do right here right now get your risk understand your risk factors and get your risk management plan together and then there's some fundamental work that we need to do around unpacking what respect and respectful relationships looks like in the workplaces and I think understanding that in many instances in some of those occupations or industries um, social isn't social it's actually business and we and um, and need to unpack that and say that's not right to be doing business in that way. I'm not sure there is a clear answer to that question, um, but although I think your your answer was <laughs> incredibly insightful, but it does seem to me that starting to have conversations about questions that don't appear to have clear answers mm. is a really important place to be. Yep. No, I just keep thinking about a phrase that, and I might be quoting her incorrectly, but Millie Rooney from Australia Remade uses this phrase about the messiness of, hu- of humanity, the messiness of the human experience. And I, I think that's what we're beginning to really get into here is unpacking that. I think there are lines, though, where, where you know, there are lines that are crossed and that's part of the conversation around Parliament House at the moment, um, is, is defining those lines and making it absolutely clear of what is unacceptable behaviour, coming back to ideas around respect and around uh, notions of consent. I was just going to add that I think um, one of the things in, in terms of defining that line, I think the international convention that's been adopted on violence and harassment in the world of <laughs> I was just about to that. ask you a question about that. Okay. Oh, okay, sorry, that, have I done yeah, No, does, does that give us the framework for moving forward and, and how? So, yeah, so tell us some more I about think, that, please. I, I think it really does. I, just, just to deal with that kind of idea that there's a line, I think uh, um, I agree with you and then I don't agree with you on one hand because what the um, what the International Convention does is actually re- recognises a, a range of behaviours and um, a, a range of behaviours, acts and practices that um, um, are violence that that equate to violence and harassment, and the idea in the conversation about that um, that language was around the fact that um, whilst people didn't want to use the term continuum, i.e., that things start small and bit bigger, and 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 in that idea. Um, gives uh, give a sense that the smaller things are kind of not important. Um, but the point was that that that, that these behaviours start at a level, and they do, and and over time, if they're not checked or addressed, or the environment's not created to say that's not what we want, they they do create the enabling environment then for you know quite fun the thing that crosses the line. So I I think it's really important that people understand that that there's all those small little things that also lead to problems. It's it's the denigrating behaviour. It's the, the the jokes. It's the offhand comments. It's the um, sexist remarks. It's the um, 
asking uh, the, the woman in the group or expecting the woman in the group to pick up the cups after you leave the meeting room because that's just what it is. Um, I know everyone would want to scream or every woman probably in a workplace wants to scream about that because that's just, it's it's the assumption that you can clear the cop- photocopying trays because you know how to do that because surely administrative work is associated with women. Um, it's it's all of those sorts of things um, that uh, where that is going on that then mean that when you have that final act that crosses the line kind of like seems really a shock to people but in fact it's um it's actually when you unpack it it's part of an overall environment that's been created um so i think that that concept is one that the uh, the international convention unpacks i think the other thing that the international convention gives us is this new framework it it, it asks states so then when it's talking to states the the international labor organization is talking to governments but the great thing about the international labor organization is, is that it's a tripartite organization so they're a representatives of government and representative of workers through their trade unions and representative of employers who made this convention. And they all had to basically uh, discuss it um, and they and it has to have like a, a two-thirds majority of all of those people to accept it. So it's got a very high level of um, acceptance of that this is, this is good. And it calls on states to put in place... Um, uh, a system which um, provides for what's called an in, um, in, inclusive, integrated and gender-responsive approach to uh, uh, preventing violence and harassment in the workplace. And those elements are really important. So it, in, in, inclusivity means uh, not missing anyone out. So it, the fact that most of our current workplace laws are, are described around the employment relationship and leave out people who are not in the employment relationship but who are at work is is a problem, particularly as we move to more and more forms of precarious employment where people are seen to be their own employees rather than employed by an entity. And we have that problem in Parliament House now with the staffers where they seem to be a different and separate sort of relationship going on there. Um, it. And it also um, it, 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 it it also has a very broad definition of work of, of work. So it talks about the world of work. So it's not just about what happens in a workplace, but it's the things that happen outside of the work. So it would pick up those social parameters, but also travelling to and from work, um, and where work takes place. Um, the integrated approach is, I think, what's kind of going to be interesting for Australia because it calls on. Um, governments and employers and workers to look at how you bring together the fact that um, to combat violence and harassment, you can't have these siloed. It's criminal, therefore it goes here. It's a health and safety matter, so therefore it goes here. It's a, a equal opportunity matter, so it goes off to the Equal Opportunity Tribunal. And none of those things are integrated together. We never really have a matter that's that's just about the employment relationship or just about equal opportunity, um, it all falls under the definitions of the Sex Discrimination Act, for example. It, 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 often it's, it, it's, it's, it's the, there's elements of race associated with it, elements of gender associated with it. So what we're really talking about is breaking down those silos. And I think, you know, breaking down the understanding of organisations that, that they can say it's a, it's a criminal matter Let's refer it to the police. And in that saying that oh, we have no responsibility for handling this in our workplaces, which is exactly the scenario we've got playing out quite quite, quite clearly um, at the moment. So 
that's what um, the convention is calling for. It's talking about an integrated response, um, and it's and it's talking about um, a better, uh, um, uh, more emphasis on prevention in that integrated response than uh, on res- on complaints making in an integrated response. And in terms of being gender responsive, it's talking going about it, it's going beyond gender sensitivity. So it's an active requirement it's it's a not that you see gender but that you see it you acknowledge it and you do something about the way that gender is creating inequality so um and um and that includes um dealing with gender-based power relationships in the workplace so i think the the ilo convention is a really great starting point for organizations to uh, for nations to get their head around what they should be doing in the systems and the regulatory systems in particular that they, they've got in place. But also organisations could quite easily, easily say we could take those three elements, um, inclusivity, um, integration and gender responsiveness, and we could build our own um, approach based on that. I feel as though this is a conversation that we could and should continue for much longer but we'll have to start to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, I think this, these are issues that we will come back to. Um, Fiona, it strikes me as we talk about these really complex issues that the first thing we need are, are almost some tools for thinking about them and then some some ways of beginning to talk. And I wonder, you know, based on, on your research and, and based on what philosophy gives us in terms of those tools for thinking, how do we begin to understand these really complex issues? How do we begin to understand kinds of toxic power that we see playing out in the workplace and begin to counter that? So what are our first steps in terms of shifting our thinking and shifting conversations? We can't do it all at once. So where do we start with that thinking and talking? Mm. I mean, I suppose it flows through some of the things I was speaking about earlier. I mean, I think... um Often we're not interested enough in analysing forms of authority, for example, or ways in which systems of legitimation, like the meritocracy I was talking about earlier, often have multiple kinds of effects. So we we often want to see things very sort of um, simply, here I have my system, here I have my policy, and, and we take it far too much at face value that that's doing what it says it does, whereas actually mostly spaces of authority that organize our power relationships are very complex and you know they can work one way in one context and in an entirely another way in another context um so thinking critically about those kinds of question i think is is very very important and really part of the kind of prevention that i think lisa was emphasizing as well you know we need um obviously a lot of the time in our daily work we just need things to kind of flow you know we just need to carry on as we are not thinking too much about how we're doing things. But those spaces in which we step aside and think, well, how is this really working? And and creating spaces where we can have really open, honest conversations about that, I think are part of that sort of reflective practice that that we need to um, engage. Um, I'm just thinking again about the disruption of coronavirus. And I think I just wonder 
I keep on hoping that through some of the extraordinary adversity that we faced in the last year or two, that we can answer some of these questions with more nuance, that, that the, the fundamental the assumptions that we make about the structure of power um, can change as we've changed our work environment, as we've changed our priorities within our community. So it might be a real opportunity um, to, 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 to reframe, I think, some of these discussions. Uh, Lisa, last question for you, for you. If you had one recommendation for policymakers for immediate action, based on the conversation we've just had, what would that be? I think we need um, to make it clear to organisations that they have a responsibility for preventing violence and harassment, including sexual harassment, um, including all forms of gender-based violence in the workplace. And I think we need them to see it. And I think we've gone beyond the um, we'll encourage you to. We've now we've gone beyond the carrots. We we need to stick. It, clearly, it's not working the way it's work. It's it's work. It's not working what we've tried so far. Um, there's there's overwhelming evidence that it's everywhere. So it's a systemic problem across society, and. At the heart of it, um, in my conversations with employers and what I've seen also employers, organisations submit the um, the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment, at the heart of it I think organisations want to characterise sexual harassment and other forms of gender-based violence as individual acts done by, in, in, uh, simple individual acts done by naughty people and not something that's part of their problem. And they certainly have a resentment that their kind of the obligation on employers is to almost, they think, cure society's ills and they, and they resent that responsibility resting with them. So we've got a lot of work to do to force organisations to take, accept their responsibility as part of a community and society as well as, you know, not, not on their own and that their only motive is their own profit and they don't have any responsibility. They do have a responsibility. They have responsibility for what happens within their for want of a better metaphorical four walls, but they also have a responsibility because they take from the community and society and they need to be giving back. So I we have we we're going to have to put that responsibility on them and we're going to have to make it abundantly clear. And that requires making them um, making them put in place um, preventative actions, making them have their risk management plan in place, making them address what the issues are for them and monitoring and reviewing that with them and also supporting them to be able to do it better. That's a fantastic answer. Fiona, what about you? Have you got some final thoughts to share with us? Well, I think just following on from what Lisa said, I mean, that aspect of pressure, you know, allowing mm. pressure to flow in organisations from people who come together over concerns around around these sorts of issues. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I Direct the Gender Institute at ANU, and that's a network that runs right across the university of people who have concerns broadly with with gender equality. And I think it's been a tremendously important site of of raising concerns, um, putting a bit of pressure on the organisation. You know, you need these uh, alternate spaces where people, you know, raise consciousness in that very traditional sense and also um, put the pressure on organisations to change. It's not it's not going to happen just because people want to be more responsible. A lot of it's going to come through actually feeling that, you know, people are watching and they really need to act. 
This is a conversation that we will come back to. I feel as though we have scratched the surface. I also feel as though this has been a fundamentally important conversation in taking some of these issues a little deeper, which is what we always want to do on this pod. So uh, Lisa, Fiona, thank you so much for an incredible conversation today. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for both of you. Well, Anna Greta, what an amazing conversation that was. I feel as though we have opened so many issues that we need to explore further. And I think over the course of, of this year, we will come back to some of these issues again and again. I think that's what really it is that this has given us a structure or given us some extraordinary ideas that we will take through uh, through the rest of this year and through the conversations that we're planning through the podcast I also found this a really helpful and insightful conversation as we contend with the the political events at the moment. Um, And I'm sure that there will be a number of people listening to this, and I know that between you and I when we've spoken about it, that the events that are unfolding uh, in our federal parliament are quite rattling for a lot of women, a lot of men, and a lot of people around Australia. And I, I think we got some really solid perspectives on why that's the case. It's not just about that particular event in 1988 uh, and whether or not that took place, but it's actually the structural stuff that we see every day. It's it's what Lisa described as the little things. Uh, it's the conversations around respect for women and making sure that there are safe places to work, particularly in federal politics, that then make it so so it, it's it's almost painful to watch our major leaders uh, as men, surrounded by men, making decisions in a male framework. Uh, and I think there's a – I would very much like to see on International Women's Day that our Prime Minister particularly finds himself surrounded by women, even for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a month or two, where the dominant advice and the dominant framework is not coming as it has been from a male-dominated perspective. Um, uh, for me, that's the that's the little thing. It's the visual of our prime minister surrounded by men, which make this this unfolding crisis around sexual assault so much more difficult to deal with. Anna Greta, I, I think that's right. Um, I think some of the the issues that we're grappling with in Australia at the moment and in other countries, you know, there are dramatic issues in Australia, but we're not alone here. Um, are really painful for for women to watch, but also for many men to see. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's not just those incidents, and there is nothing just about those incidents, but it's because we see violence against women taking place in contexts across society. We're seeing it in the workplace. We're seeing it in homes. We're seeing it in the streets. And it is terrifying and it speaks to something that is deeply wrong with the soul of society that we need to fix. Um, and I agree with you that the visuals of seeing our leaders and, and particularly of late our prime minister surrounded by men talking about these issues is a visual that is really problematic. And it's a visual that reflects how decisions are being made. Um, and I would say I, I would like to see our leaders surrounded by women and men mm. and a diverse range mm. of people all the time mm. when decisions are being made. And those conversations have to start happening. Absolutely. No, that's the sort of structural stuff that I think really can make a difference. 
And I, I feel like uh, today's conversation is a really extraordinary way for us to mark International Women's Day. I hope this gives pause for thought for many people out there. Um, and I think as we uh, we get to the bottom of this extraordinary crisis in Australian politics, uh, that the way forward will be much, much better. So thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Uh, as you know, we're always interested to get your feedback and please reach out to us through all of the different mechanisms that are available. We are, of course, on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or, of course, you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. One of the best ways to engage with us is our Facebook group. And if you go to, on Facebook and type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, uh, you can join our, our active discussions. And it's a really great spot for, for ongoing conversations. And if you've got ideas about what you'd like us to be talking about in the future, please engage with us through that mechanism. Please leave a review. We love hearing from you. And please subscribe to the podcast through whichever one of the platforms you use, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Listeners, we will be back with another episode next week. We've got a great uh, plan for the next couple of months ahead, um, and we're really looking forward to continuing this discussion. But I hope you enjoy celebrating International Women's Day and that next week is a better week in politics. Absolutely. Wishing everyone a good a constructive, positive, happy International Women's Day. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Bye, Sharon. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye from Anna Greta Hunter. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.